I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. The Literary Life, Emma Straub. There's no one I know who exemplifies this more than she does. The New York Times best-selling author of five novels and one short story collection, and the author of Very Good Hats, her first of three picture books for kids, Emma is also a bookseller. She and her husband own The Marvelous Books Are Magic, an independent bookstore with two locations in Brooklyn, New York. Her new novel, This Time Tomorrow, was on everyone's year-end best books lists, including Time magazine. In their words, Emma Straub has never been better expertly manipulating time travel tropes to unravel a tender story about family and fate. The result is a narrative full of revelations, both heartbreaking and delightful, and one that serves as a love letter to Straub's own father, the novelist Peter Straub, who passed away in September of this past year. Emma and I spoke about all of this and more in person at the Carl Gables location of Books and Books. Emma Strav, welcome to The Literary Life. It's so great to have you at Books and Books. It's a real thrill to have you as an author, but also to have you as a fellow bookstore owner. Mitchell, you're so nice. You're so nice. It's just, I feel absolutely honored to be here in both of those ways. Um, you are the king. You're the king of bookstores. So well, I feel like I'm having a royal audience at the moment. <laughs> just, you live long enough. Yeah. <laughs> what is that song? I think there's a rock and roll song, right? You live long enough. Yeah. And you're the king. Is it Tom Petty who did that? You're the king or something know. like I that? I don't know. But anyway, you make it look really good, Mitchell. Well, you have brought such incredible attention to independent book selling. It's really... Amazing. And your stores, for those of you who have not been to Books or Magic, you got to make sure you go. Because I've gone when Emma's not been there, and just to bask in 
the you know the kind of the the hustle the bustle the love of reading the well curated uh selection of books and there's now books are magic 2 right books are magic 2 electric boogaloo yeah we <laughs> we just opened um our second location um the first week of november so it's 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 still very new um and what's funny <laughs> what's funny about the new one is that i was I was so preoccupied with everything else happening in my life that I actually didn't have time to feel too anxious about it. Um, you know, when we opened the first one, I was in there every day doing whatever. Um, but with this with this new one, I really I I had <laughs> really delegated properly um my husband mike did most of the work as he always does and the biggest difference was that this time we had a whole staff and so they were amazing you know before it was just the two of us running around like crazy um with people who were brand new and this time we actually knew what we were doing so it, it was a lot easier um and it is, I don't know if you feel this way when you open a new space, but, but now the new space looks so beautiful to me. And the first one, I'm like, it's so dusty in here. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you start immediately going, I wish I had like a whole secret thing of cash so I could redo that first store. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I do. I feel like the first one, like it's my, it's my baby. Like I love it. I love it the most in many ways. But I do, but I do feel like it needs a big makeover. Tell me about the different neighborhoods you're in. Yeah, so the the first store is in Cobble Hill, or sort of on the border of Cobble Hill and Carroll Gardens, um, which are very like leafy residential neighborhoods in Brooklyn. Um, and we're on Smith Street, which is which is a funny street because it's had. I mean, in in the years that I have lived in Brooklyn and and been in Brooklyn. Smith Street has had several revivals and deaths and you know it's very up and down there are great restaurants um, and then those restaurants close and then there are new great restaurants and you know things like that so and then there's a pandemic and which then, puts a whole and there's a pandemic. another layer of things on. yeah um, but it's but it's great I mean it's you know it's a lot of like um, there are a lot of brownstones and a lot of families and it's it's really friendly and, and wonderful. Yeah, and, it seems like that. And it seems like the street is alive and it's people shopping for a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. It's not, not a lot of chains on the street. No, no chains. It's really, really Yeah, great. or I, I mean, I guess there are a couple, but what's funny during the pandemic, I don't know if, I don't know if this happened in Miami as well. I, I, I bet it happened in a lot of places, but the, the, there were a couple of chains in our neighborhood. There was like a Mac, cosmetics there was a lululemon the lululemon is still there but there were a few places but you know during when things were closed those things were closed um but it was all the independent small businesses well that is the argument about independent you know independent bookstores and all small business are committed to their communities You know the chain. If it's not doing well, they're going to pick up and leave, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, and a lot of the and a lot of them did, and and nobody missed. No, 
forgive me for saying, nobody misses them. Um, but yeah, and, and our, our new store is on Montague Street in Brooklyn Heights, um, which, you know, Brooklyn Heights is like the, sure. the original suburb of <laughs> Manhattan. Um, it's like probably the most affluent neighborhood in, in Brooklyn. I, when it wasn't as affluent, I stayed there to go to a summer program at NYU, and I stayed in a friend's apartment. Is it the St. George Hotel or the King yes, George Hotel? Yes, the St. George. St. George yep. Hotel. I have a funny story about that. <laughs> Um, but I love that whole area. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's got a really rich literary history, Brooklyn Heights. Um, you know, like Walt Whitman and... Norman Mailer. And Norman Mailer lived, <laughs> lived down the block and Truman Capote and, right. you know, all just an incredible list of, of poets and writers. Um and it's been amazing. It's been amazing so far. They they did a they did a poll last year, the neighborhood association, and like ninety nine people voted and said they wanted a bookstore. Wow. <laughs> so so we're getting cool. Brooklyn Heights out in full that force. That is fantastic. Yeah. That so what was the impetus for the very first one? How did that happen? So I when I was in my twenties, I worked as a bookseller at at Book Court, which was then our local bookstore right. in Cobble Hill. And I loved it. I loved it. I I was I was a terrible employee, I think. Like <laughs> I was good at what I was good at, which was talking to people and making friends and smooching babies, you know, like I was But you weren't good at pulling returns. No, <laughs> I had no responsibilities. They never gave me any responsibilities and thank God. Um but I loved it. I loved it. And then um I quit that job when I I had already published my first novel and my story collection, but I was um, I was pregnant with my first child, and it, it just you know it didn't it didn't make sense anymore. But I loved it always, and it was always my my like home base bookstore. And then my husband and by then our two kids moved back really close to the bookstore really just because I wanted to live around the corner from it and I found out that they were they closed, closed they were closing because right. they were they were going to retire they sold their buildings right. and before they closed and before it was public information I went to them and I said guys wait <laughs> you you didn't know this but I was, moved here but just... it was always my plan to take over when oh, you retired really? wow. it was like a, a, a fantasy of mine right, right. and my husband's and it didn't make sense I mean, they had sold the building, so we would have had to move anyway. Right. So it didn't it didn't make sense for us to be book court. court. Um, but they were so open with us, and you know, shared their finances, and and really sort of explained to us how it worked. And um, my good friend Christine Onorati, who owns Word right. in in Brooklyn and in New Jersey, she shared all of her numbers with us, and. Really, everyone did. Actually, it's a great it's a great group. Yeah, it? booksellers. It's a it's a you know you think of the group of. I always say I could go to any town anywhere and <clears throat> pretty if there's an independent bookstore I could feel at home in that yeah, town. Yeah, yeah. It's a very sharing group. Yeah, everyone, place. everyone really to a person shared with us, and um, and so book court closed on New Year's Eve. Uh, what year was that? Twenty 
2016. And we signed a lease in February of 2017. And we were open the last weekend of April. Oh, oh my God. (laughs) You were really prepared. (laughs) But we weren't. We weren't prepared at all. We just, I, I don't know. I mean, that's a, that's amazing. A two month, the two month opening. Wild. It was wild. And I don't know how it worked. Um, because neither of us had ever done it before, but we learned really quickly. You learn, but the spirit of what you do, I mean, I, you know, just to see what other people are doing, I sign up to a lot of newsletters and all of that and your newsletters and your social media and you have such, it's all about community, which is, you know, what the best bookstores really are. Yeah. You know, it's all about community. And as a bookseller of many years, who has always um, seen authors as, you know, on my Mount Olympus, uh, to see authors getting into the book business has been an amazing, wonderful thing. There's Anne, oh, you know, yeah. Anne's bookstore yeah. in Nashville. We have a books and books so long with Judy Bloom and of her course, husband. Of course, I know. I know you did a marvelous <laughs> job with her on that on that Zoom we had together. But but you know, there's something about you guys throwing yourself into it, which then it kind of it kind of um, it kind of makes the circle complete. Mm, you know, yeah. it creates a literary community that's even stronger. In that yeah, sense. and you know, I mean, Anne was the first person I I. Well, no, she's not the first person. So I, I, I talked to several friends of mine who own small businesses in Brooklyn, restaurants and other kinds of shops. <laughs> and I said, should we do this? And all of them said, no, why? Why would you ruin your life like this? Like at the time, well, I was I was just writing books like on my own and time. And kids. And, and I, had- yeah. And I called Anne, but that wasn't the answer I wanted. Right. And I called Anne, and she said, yes. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not going to say, I'm not going to disobey <laughs> Anne Patchett. You crazy? Right. If right. Anne told me to jump off the roof, I would jump off the roof. I'm with you. I'm yeah. with you. That's very cool. <laughs> well, you know, it's really, it reminds me, when I opened back in the 80s, it was a very famous bookseller in Chicago named Stuart Brent. He had Stuart Brent's books. Mm. And Stuart Brent was like contemporary of Saul Bellow mm-hmm. and those guys. Mm-hmm. And he was on Michigan Avenue in a really, you know, beautiful place. And I was up in Chicago and I walked in and I had been open only a couple of years. And I timidly, wa- I saw him there. He was sitting at a, t- at a desk with, of course, like a bottle of something, <laughs> and bourbon or whatever it was there. And I went timidly up to him and said, look, my name is Mitchell Kaplan. I'm opening a bookstore. Before I could get where I was opening the bookstore, he grabbed me around the neck with these big, beefy, (laughs) meeting hands, and he went, Boychick, don't do it. (laughs) And I keep hearing that, Boychick, don't do it. And he started regaling me for like, 15 minutes about yeah. in the old days he could call Bennett Surf yeah. and he would get Bennett Surf but now all he gets is some switchboard operator yeah. who doesn't know who he is <laughs> so like at every level and every year it's always been there's always been something that someone complains about yeah. but, but you know I you know you have this dual life and I feel like I won the lottery in the sense that I took this road less traveled 
and I, and I get to talk to Emma Straub. I mean, that is the life that led me to this moment. And, you know, who knew? But I just had this sense of, you know, this sense of um, self-preservation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I love the story that you moved. <laughs> you moved to be at the bookstore. Yeah. The bookstore then closes. Know, you go, wait so a minute, rude. you can't close. It was guys. so rude. I was like, come on, guys. And I think it was, I think it really was, speaking of sort of not being in your right mind, like I think it was also that I was still in a sort of um, post postpartum. Oh, you had just had your child. Like, Twilight Zone and it seemed like well we have to live near a bookstore so we could either move again we had just moved or we could open a bookstore and opening the bookstore seemed like so much more fun and so much easier and you know the reason that it I think the reason that it worked I mean first of all all credit to my husband really because Mike so is he working full time in the bookstore no this is what he does he he and I I knew that it would work because one of my one of my previous jobs after oh, sorry no before before I worked at the bookstore and and then after um, was working as an assistant a personal assistant to a musician named Stephen Merritt who's in a band called the Magnetic Fields oh I love that band they're wonderful band. I used to when we first opened we sold CDs oh and we sold those, yeah. there, and I just, believe it or not, I'll show you my phone, I just downloaded, I bumped into them yeah. on Apple or something, yeah. I just downloaded them oh, again. Oh, good. There's, they they're were the amazing. They're my favorite. They're my favorite. They were favorite. like the first alternative band that I can sort of remember yeah. marked alternative. Yeah. <laughs> so, I worked for Steve, Stephen, who's the songwriter, right. the main person in the band, as his personal assistant, and one of the things, you know, I would do whatever during his you know regular wow. life but then when they went on tour i would go on tour with them wow. and we very very quickly realized that just like at the bookstore i was pretty useless by myself <clears throat> i complained about things being heavy i got tired i didn't like counting everything <laughs> at the end of the night i was no good at that stuff but Mike was great at it. So I was like, God, because he used to, Mike grew up in Florida and was a roadie for all of his friends' bands. So he Your was, husband? Yeah, so he was great. Did you meet on, is that how you met? No, we met, we worked in publishing, we met in publishing in New York where I worked for about five minutes and then I got out of there and he was, he was working as a graphic designer, which is what he did until we opened the bookstore and now he does all of our graphic design, wow. which is why we've got really good... Merch. And the best merch in the world. <laughs> but so he he knew how to do that kind of stuff. And so we became this great team for the band because he would do all the hard stuff. And I, you know, if we were in Miami or Chicago or New York, I we you did it the for fun 10 person. years. We did it for 10 years. And so their fans were very consistent, just like at a bookstore. And so I remembered everybody, and I'd say, "Oh, you, you, you know, right? You know, this is what you were wearing the last time we saw you." Or we see a twelve-year-old, and then they're sixteen, and I can show them the picture that I took of them four years ago at this, you know, that kind and of. And there's thing. a high from that too. Yeah, it's what I always call the, the producer's high. Yeah, there's <laughs> a high producing something. Yeah, and and so we were really good at that. And so I knew that we could do a bookstore because I knew that he would handle 
the numbers and making sure that we had what we needed to have. Right. Because if he could make sure that, you know, two boxes of CDs were going to arrive at this hotel on that day, you know, whatever. He could do the same logistically for books. He could do it in one place. Right. And I could be the front of the house. That's fantastic. And, and you know, we... And the timing yeah. was right. Yeah, and the timing was right. And so that's phenomenal. And here we are. So, <laughs> that, and that's just, I mean, that's just a sliver of your life. Mm-hmm. I mean, you are now with this new book, This Time Tomorrow, which I have to tell you was, it was such a moving read for me. My dad, uh, as we were talking before, yeah. my father... Uh, I was the caregiver for him, basically. Mm, And certainly, if I could go back in time and change some of his habits, (laughs) you know, maybe he'd still be alive today. Um, His body just basically gave out, is what happened. Because he never was able to put a governor on any of his desires or whims or eating or drinking or any of that stuff. So I, I know that you just, a lot of that... And the caregiving of your own dad and the sickness of your own dad had something to do with this. Yes. Talk about Yeah. Talk about Yeah. That. You know, it's so funny. At the at the lunch, the lunch, this wonderful lunch that Books and Books Not Organized. The Brickle Literary Society. At the Brickle Literary Society, someone asked me a hilarious question, which was, if I could go back in time to my 16-year-old self, as my main character does, would I, um, or like... You know, would I want to apologize? Like, would I want would I want forgiveness from my from my father for like what a like wild teen I was? And I la- I was like, oh no no, my friend, my father was a thousand times more wild than I could ever be if I lived to a hundred. I mean, I just like he was. Talk about your dad is Peter Straub, (laughs) the great, 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 great writer. Yeah. And you grew up, you know, in a writing family. I grew up in a writing family, and sorry. So to answer your question, so yeah, so my dad, um, Peter Straub, was in the hospital in 2020, and he was very, very sick, and we all thought that he was going to die. And it, thought, it was during the pandemic. It was during well. the pandemic, but it wasn't COVID. It right. was heart related, but I mean, it's complicated, but it, it wasn't COVID. And I was able to go visit him once a week, really, which is when Mike was home from the store where he right. was shipping things out every day. And where so I could be like released from my children for the day and go hang out with my dad. And he and I had a great time yeah I mean he and I always had a great time we were the best of pals and he was hilarious and so smart and so well read and we talked about books and writing and ourselves and our relationship and our family and I mean we talked about everything and I at the time I was about 50 pages into a book into writing a book that I had had to put aside in March of 2020 because I didn't have time to write it. And I was like, Dad, like, what should I write? <laughs> and he was like, well, maybe you should write a book about a woman visiting her father in the hospital. <laughs> and I thought, well, 
<laughs> and I just and I had it all. I had it all. I had the I had the beginning. And you had the time travel. I had the time well. travel. Wow. I had it all. I, I saw the whole thing. And and I started writing it before I knew I mean, what do any of us know? But yeah. before I knew that he would live to read it, you know? And it's fiction. I mean it's time travel. But even aside from the time but travel, it's, rooted. it's fiction. But it is so much about me and him and and I am so grateful. I mean I could I who knows how many more books I'll write, you know, how who knows? None of us know. But I can tell you for sure that no book will ever be as important to me as this one. Because I was able I was able to give him this object, the, his favorite kind of object. I mean, it might be better if I was a saxophone player because he <laughs> loved jazz maybe even more than books. Right. But let's say his second favorite object. But I was able to hand it to him and say, this is how much I love you. Here. What a gift. What an amazing gift. Yeah. That both of you got to spend that time in that way yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, and you had that relationship throughout your life, pretty yeah. much. Yeah, I mean, always. It wasn't always. A, I mean, it was every relationship is complicated, but it wasn't fraught. Your relationship no, was not a fraught it was never, not for a day. Right. I mean, not for a day. Like, he, he would bring me to preschool, and he would hang out with me and my friends and, like, make up stories about mermaids with us until my teachers would be <laughs> like, Peter... You have to go. Like you can't stay here all day. But I understand it now because that's what I like to do with right. my kids, you know. Right. Um, and having being a writer, he's not on any time schedule. Right, he doesn't have to be anywhere. Right. <laughs> he has no office to go to. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, just from from birth, he and I were great friends, and you know, I and I really, I mean, I more credit to my husband really that. When I, he's going to love this podcast, man. Woo. Um, <laughs> but when, when, after I went to grad school in, uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, you know. Mike, in, was Mike, it an MFA program? Yeah, Mike came with me. We weren't married yet, but we'd been living together and he was freelance so he could move. And the deal really was, okay, I'll move to Wisconsin with you, but. After Wisconsin, I get to choose. He gets to choose. Right. But uh, in 2009, when I was done, my dad was already not well, really. And so I said, no, no, we're, we're, we're moving home. We're moving home. There's uh, who knows how many more years I have him. And so I'm going to be there. And... So we got, we got, we got him all the time. You know, my, my parents lived. They lived in Brooklyn too, For the right? last, yeah, they moved, they moved right before my youngest was born. So for seven years. Because you grew up on the Upper West Side. I grew up on the Upper West Side, which right. is where the book takes place. Um, but yeah, so for the last decade, really, they, they were our neighbors too. And so we got to spend so much time with them. And, I mean, we see my mom, like, every day. Also. Well, the other thing about the book was it was a time, a time travel back to when the character is 16 years old. Yeah. 
So you're able to describe the Upper West Side at a time that is not like... Yeah. And I know the Upper West Side a bit because my daughter lives up there. Yeah. And so I go, I've go. i been going there for many, many, many years. Yeah. My sisters live there. Yeah. So I remember the time when you're writing about yeah. it, when it was a very... You know, it was, there was maybe one or two good restaurants yeah. to eat at. <laughs> I remember there was this really great cafe that I would go all the time mm. called the Cafe Fortuna. Oh, yes. Do you yes, remember that? Yes, I do. And I, it was the very first time I ever had iced coffee, iced cappuccino, mm. but with like ices. Yeah, it, yeah. It was really great. <laughs> and I would go there all the time. Yeah. But you, you evoke that just yeah. so beautifully. Uh, well, there. that, I mean, that, thank you. And I think that, you know, I don't, I don't think of this as like a pandemic book, but really it is because I was writing it in 2020 when I couldn't go anywhere. And I'm sitting there in my house, in my little office at the top of my house in Brooklyn and I can see Manhattan out the window, but I couldn't go there. And even if I, even if I had, you know, Manhattan 2020 or 2023 is not, the Manhattan of my youth. So that's where I went. You know, I went to the place that felt safest and most comfortable. And in order to do that, I, you know, I talked to my parents and my, all my friends from childhood, like, what am I going to kick myself for not remembering to put in? Like, what was the name of the diner on that corner? Like, where was the payphone that we would use? Well, like, you have, I think you have, if I'm not mistaken, you have the papaya place. Oh, Grace Papaya. Yeah, yeah, yeah which yeah. is right on like 72nd. 72nd. Yeah. Right in 72nd and Broadway. Yeah, it's the greatest restaurant in the world. Yeah. Where did you, where did you, <laughs> where did you live on the Upper West Side? I lived on 85th between Central Park West and Columbus. Oh, sure. Sure. And it was... It's great there. It was an amazing place to grow up. In a brownstone? In a brownstone. Was in a brownstone, yeah. yeah. No, that was a... My daughter and we're, I always was was on West, was 70th between West End and Amsterdam. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I always loved that Beautiful. whole area there. Yeah. Um, God, you're taking me back. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm beginning yeah, to get nostalgic. Yeah, but you about. know, that's... I mean, that's... That's what I want. Because you know, I, I was there in the 80s and yeah. the 90s. I remember the whole And like, my, my hope is that, like, I mean, for people, for people who know the Upper West Side, certainly there, there, is, there are a lot of treasures for them in this book. But I think, I mean, my hope is that what it really does is just make people think about their own, their own special places. You know, whatever, whatever those are. If it's a Waffle House, if it's... You know, if it's a diner, whatever it is that, like, they remember the place that they would go with their friends at midnight and eat French fries and drink coffee and smoke cigarettes and think that they were terribly, terribly grown up. Yeah, and I, you have a quote somewhere that you probably should put on one of your T-shirts if you don't have it already, <laughs> which is something about living, you live, if you live day to day, you've, what, what is some, the quote? Something, something. like that, <laughs> yeah. right? You, you live each day, and before you know, you've lived a life, yeah. in a sense. Yeah. And so what you're really talking about is being present, yeah. no matter where you are. Yeah. So you, you're, you're writing about the Upper West Side, but someone in Omaha could be remembering yeah. what they did not, how they did not live in the present yeah. back yeah. then. Because when you write about your dad, and you look back, and you go, my God, if... If only, mm-hmm. but then, but that's a really high bar you put on yourself. Yeah, because 
really when you're 16, yeah. <laughs> you just never think about them. So you're going back with the same sensibility that you had as a 40-year-old yeah. going back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, in any case, congratulations on this. But you also have now decided to do a kid's book, which yeah. is kind of interesting. <laughs> you just want to heap it on yourself. All I do is complain about how busy I am, and then I, <laughs> like, I have a, you know, a very good hats. My picture book just came out. I'm, and then you're writing the screenplay. I'm writing the screenplay. <laughs> it's really, I really. Now, have you written a screenplay before? Am my own worst, worst well, we enemy. All, you, you're you're type A without really knowing your. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a, I'm a really messy type A. Right. Um, I yeah the screenplay has been so fun it's been so much fun is this your first one it's my first full length I've written pilots before for other books that have been optioned that you know who knows if it'll ever happen but but this is my first screenplay and um and I'm really lucky because this time I'm working with a director and producers who who want to make it a film who want to make it a film and and who but who who really want to make it my my it film and my voice and so we'll see i mean you know I, you know more about this stuff than i do but i just i i'll believe it when i see it but the idea is to have fun yeah make yeah. sure that you're just having fun yeah and if it happens it's a great thing yeah. and yeah. when you see it on the screen you'll go my god yeah that's really <laughs> that was fun yeah. and look yeah. at this thing yeah. So no no it's a, it's a, it could be a lot of fun and 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 this really screams out as film and I'm glad you're doing it as a film and not as a series yeah. in any yeah. way because I think you can make it you can compress things and it can be really really poignant yeah. and and emotional as as it was yeah. when I I mean I cry I cry every time I work on it you know <laughs> not every time not not in well, every scene you know it's interesting but... I mean you know the way I don't know the way I read I don't know if you ever have the same feeling, but I often read fiction as a cathartic mm -hmm, situation. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. you know, so I'm living the life of someone else, yeah. but yet reflecting on my own life. Yeah. And when I read your book, I mean, I don't know what it was ever like to be a 16-year-old girl, but but I do know what it is like to have a father yeah. who went through a traumatic yeah. dying process. Yeah. And I just kept going back to yeah. that. And it's... It's hard. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I've, I think probably that my, it sounds maybe like <laughs> twisted to say this, but one of my favorite things about my book tour for this time tomorrow has been that in every, in every single place, it doesn't matter if there are 200 people there or there are 20 people there, after the event, couple of, like a handful of people will come up to me crying and tell me about their loss whatever mm. it is and we'll hug and we'll talk and then we'll both feel a little better you know like we'll both we'll, we'll we will have connected over that and it's That's and it's incredible you know it's and I don't I don't take it lightly and I always feel grateful that 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 person is choosing to share it with me and that what I went through and what I put in this book helped them 
have that moment, you know? So, so that begs a question, being that, you know, you're such an accomplished writer of fiction, and this is so autobiographical in a lot of ways. And I've, I've read a lot of different reviews and a lot of what different people said, and I was very intrigued by one reviewer, I forgot where it was, who likened your book to Lost and Found mm. and to Ada Calhoun's book mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. her dad. I love, I love both of those books. Yeah, both books. of those books were both amazing, books amazing. But they're nonfiction. Yeah. So the idea with all of this, you know, with this feeling that you had on tour and all that, yeah. have you thought about writing nonfiction no. to some extent? No, it just seems Not hard. necessarily about this. No, but it seems hard. <laughs> and like, I don't know, you have to get things right. You have to like, I don't know. I don't want, I don't want that. I don't want that. That's a job I don't want. I really, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I really don't want to. And I mean, who knows? Maybe, maybe, maybe in essays. 20 years, maybe, maybe some yeah, essays. Yeah, maybe essays. And I, and I've written some, some essays, here and there. But, but I think I, I don't, I don't think I'm brave enough, right now. Maybe someday. But now, did yeah. you grow up always knowing you wanted to be a writer? Is that something yeah. you know because your dad was, and yeah. it was just natural, like yeah. putting on socks yeah. or something. Yeah. I mean, it just seemed like obviously the best job in the world. Right. Like, what other job is as good as? Because he was also a happy writer, right? <laughs> I mean, he was. Can, you know, can, was he happy? I don't sure. mean completely yeah, happy, but, I mean, <laughs> but could you imagine if, if you know, if yeah. you had to run away from? Well, I guess you know what it was, and I don't know if I understood this how important this was really until this book, because I've had a a, a true truly charmed existence is that my dad I I would say maybe probably not from birth but certainly by the time I was like maybe preteen ish age I understood that books for my dad were lifesavers that not just reading books in the way that you know a kid growing up with parents who didn't understand him talk about why that was yeah because so he my dad had a life full of trauma from child childhood traumas physical trauma. physical traumas just like a lot of them it, it, things he, he grew had, up did he grow up in chicago he grew up in milwaukee close, milwaukee. close. um but he had a really difficult childhood and he wrote about it in a thousand ways in all of his books mm. It didn't always look the same. Sometimes it did, but it didn't always. But writing fiction and writing dark fiction was where he exercised all of his demons and all of his shame and all of his fear and all of his anger. You know, my dad, it, it, whenever anyone met him, they were like, this guy writes scary books? Like, huge smile, so gregarious, friendly with absolutely everyone from small children to like anybody but it was because books gave him a safe space they gave him a safe place to put the darkest darkest parts of him and so when I was writing this book he he was still alive you know and and I told him I mean he knew what I was doing and he understood most people most sane people would say don't write a novel about me what are you talking about this Please, please don't do that. Um, but he understood, and he understood it 
because it was what he had always done. And I think that in some ways that, that feeling, even if I couldn't have identified it, was what always really made me want to be a writer. Hmm. That understanding that, that there was a real safety in art, you know, that, that, that art was a place where you could put everything your worries and your dreams and your your and that took you through high school through college yeah it took me through everything oh my god you should see the 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 dreams (laughs) of paper that i wrote horrible poetry on right 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 yeah (laughs) well speaking of really wonderful stuff do you think you might read the opening of of your book anything you want to read or, or any, is there another part of the book that you'd like to read, if not the opening? I'll read the opening. I like the opening <clears throat> a lot, actually. What, do you want the first first paragraph first? Yeah, just, you can just, go, a, just a little. Just go for until yeah. you feel like it's okay. natural to end. Time did not exist in the hospital. Like a Las Vegas casino, there were no clocks anywhere, and the harsh fluorescent lighting remained equally bright during the entire stretch of visiting hours. Alice had asked, once, if they turned off the lights at night, but the nurse didn't seem to hear, or maybe she thought it was a joke, but in either case, she didn't respond, and so Alice didn't know the answer. Her father, Leonard Stern, was still in his bed in the center of the room, attached to more lines and cords and bags and machines than Alice could count and had hardly spoken for a week, and so he wasn't going to tell her either, even if he did open his eyes again. Could he sense the difference? Alice thought about lying in the grass in Central Park in the summertime as a teenager, letting her closed eyelids feel the warmth of the sun when she and her friends would stretch their bodies out on rumpled blankets, waiting for JFK Jr. to accidentally hit them with a frisbee. These lights didn't feel like the sun. They were too bright and too cold. Beautiful, beautiful, and it goes on from there. Emma, I could talk to you forever. Yeah. This has been such a pleasure. <laughs> it's really, really a pleasure. It's a real highlight for me to be here with you. Too. And uh, we're going to go into the next room where you're going to talk um, to Sh- uh, Chantal Acevedo, who's yeah. a lovely writer in her own right. And uh, I look f- forward to many more of these. And I look forward to seeing you in Brooklyn. Thank you, Mitchell. You're the greatest. As are you. (laughs)